You're listening to Death and Numbers, a podcast created by the Humanities Media Project and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome back to our Food for Thought series. I'm Amy Viter. And I'm Caroline Barta. In our past few episodes, we've discussed how cookbooks bridge cultural boundaries and serve as community organizers. Today, we hope to give you a taste of a rich American food tradition, complicated by relationships to the family unit and economic reality. We'll consider habits of conserving and extending resources, as well as time-honored practices of sustainability and seasonality. To kickstart this episode, we visited Baylor University's Texas Collection, which houses over 1,500 Texas cookbooks. Many of these are family volumes. That's right. We had a delightful day giggling through genealogies, favorite recipes, and family stories. We discovered the line between a loose family recipe collection and other published cookbooks is quite narrow. These homespun cookbooks were spiral-bound recipe collections drawn from family lore, newspaper clippings, package wrappers, and promotional materials. Fritos and Jello, oh my. And they were often produced to commemorate anniversaries, family reunions, or to even fundraise for a beloved charity like a local church or school. The person or persons involved in the compilation of these books was usually far from a professional chef or celebrity. Well, except maybe in their family. That's right. Usually they were caretakers of their family history. Right, because not all cookbooks are created for commercial success or for wide readership. More and more, archives are collecting family treasures right alongside published cookbooks. Even rare book archives, like the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, the New York Public Library, and the Library of Congress have extensive cookbook collections and recognize their value as historical documents. These collections have extended our knowledge of women's lives and literacies from centuries past. As Dr. Rebecca Sharpless, professor of history at Texas Christian University, explains, there are so many things you can learn about women's lives from reading a cookbook. Colonists relied upon popular British cookbooks, like Eliza Smith's The Complete Housewife, published in 1727. These guides were rather limiting in the New World because they listed ingredients native to a European climate. As the first American cookbook published in 1796, Amelia Simmons' American Cookery prompted the new nation to ask questions about its forming identity through food. What is American cuisine? Her book relies on adaptation and imitation. It features recipes that are distinctly North American and have ingredients like cornmeal, cranberries, turkey, and squash. Of course, indigenous peoples had used regional ingredients for thousands of years. But Simmons does not attribute her newfound knowledge to existing food traditions. That's right. And the story of early American food, New England hogs the attention. It does not adequately reflect the diversity of emerging American cuisine. And over the past two centuries, American food has represented these problematic realities. Not only did American cuisine rely on cultural appropriation, the results of colonization and slavery, but more specifically Southern food, muddles the diverse conflicts within communities. Stay with us as we feature three vignettes about recipe collections that are either formalized into a cookbook or passed down by oral tradition. These represent the sometimes haphazard but often meaningful associations created around our closest relationships with food.
production in early southern kitchens often put off that African and Caribbean culture had seamlessly melded with European transplants. John Edgerton, a journalist who's known for his work on civil rights and southern culture, has explained, The proximity of whites and blacks in the South, their isolation from mainstream America, and the centrality of women to the region's foodways made Afro-European cookery an existential reality almost from the beginning of the United States. The South had thoroughly and indivisibly integrated its food. That's true, at least from a food perspective. But despite the perception of this complete integration, the realities of 19th and 20th century Southern culture more broadly reflected the after effects of slavery and continued segregation from Jim Crow laws. Even after the Civil War, black cooks, mostly women, some men, continued to run middle and upper class kitchens. Remaining hierarchies within Southern families gave rise to two prevalent and often overlapping caricatures of black women. Connected to food preparation, the aunt or mammy figure, which is occasionally swapped out with miss, stripped these women of their full identities in favor of a two-dimensional portrait of their domestic role in a kitchen space. Ostensibly, aunt or mammy were honorary titles bestowed on slaves and later servants. This connotation is problematic because it really ingratiated them into the family hierarchy. It tried to make African-American women desexualized objects. It signified that black women would not supplant the woman of the house, either in her domestic or her wifely duties. Two popular media representations of these caricatures were Mammy and Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, famously portrayed on screen in 1939 by Hattie McDaniel, who was the first black woman to receive an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. And also Aunt Jemima, a female counterpart to Uncle Tom, created as a marketing ploy. She was a mythic persona, a caricature for all seasons, a jolly fat black woman in a do-rag, cooking up a storm, singing while she worked. Right, but this figure of Aunt Jemima only appeared at the turn of the 20th century. Through the sales of products like pancake mix, marketing agencies perpetuated stereotypes of black women. Vital work to reclaim a history of black cookbook authors has most recently been undertaken by African-American journalist Toni Tipton-Martin in her 2015 book, The Jemima Code, Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. Described as a culinary autobiography, Tipton's book emulates the scholarship of a museum exhibition catalog while maintaining the approachability of an art book for a coffee table. It introduces generally unknown African-American cookbooks to a wider audience in order to substantiate a heritage of greatness, exemplify culinary freedom for black cooks, and allow everyone to embrace Jemima's bandana. Tipton Martin's work has recovered, cataloged, and critiqued 200 of these cookbooks in order to ensure their contributions to American cuisine continue to be valued by future Americans. Tipton Martin articulates the Jemima Code and its significance in this clip from the University of Texas Press. When we think about the idea of a Jemima Code, it's a myth based on a myth. It's a story of actions, responses, behaviors, choices that are made by people in response to seeing this trademarked image um, that was used to categorize African-American women who worked in America's kitchens. It was created by two guys who wanted to sell more pancake flour, and so they collected characteristics of real women, and some from Southern Plantation mammy stories, 
And they came up with this aggregate image that they called Aunt Jemima. And forever, Aunt Jemima has been the trademark image on cornmeal, pancake flour, lots of other baking products. The problem with that image is that all of those characteristics lead to stereotyping. It's sort of a private inside joke told between these guys and their broader community, of obviously of white Americans, so that anybody who approaches that image comes with their own thoughts, sees it through their own filters, and that includes African Americans, right? So it had this peculiar encoded way of performing as a symbol that sent multiple messages out into the community, some as simple as buy this flower because this wonderful woman that you remember from slavery days made really terrific pancakes. The reason that I find the stereotyping to be such a problem is that it led to prejudicial treatment of African-American women in particular, but some men as well, who worked in America's kitchens so that we were sometimes categorized as the laborers who had to do all this heavy lifting and heavy work, and that's not very positive. Or we were treated as people who really did perform quite well in the kitchen, but we did so with a natural instinct, a kind of a voodoo magic, I've described it. You know, just this way that was, generally speaking, in either way, not intelligent. And feminists and African-American scholars have gone even further to describe that image as a way to keep African-American women enslaved in a box. Returning to the Baylor archive, we were surprised to find one of the recipe collections profiled by Tipton Martin. The curator, Amy Oliver, showed us another work Tipton Martin had inquired about, but was not able to feature due to scheduling constraints. The first, featured in the Jemima Code, is by Lucille Bishop Smith, whose resume is as varied as her recipe collection. Smith's accomplishments include marketing the hot roll mix, as well as working as a food editor for CPM Magazine, working as a food demonstrator and caterer, pastry chef, and dietitian. As a black woman, she was a pioneer in the culinary profession. Smith's treasure chest of fine foods offers practical recipes served with helpful tips. A recipe for mock champagne reads, here is a beverage for your teenage parties. Church groups, educators, college students, Valdemar counselors, and campers have stamped their approval on this mock champagne as being the answer to a present need. Here it is, put into a punch bowl, cubes of ice, or a molded block of ice or frozen Sprite. Add a pink rose when semi-frozen. Mix equal amounts of Sprite and apple juice and pour over the ice. Allow it to stand for a few minutes. Serve cold and delight your guests. Try adding a bit of pink coloring to the champagne before pouring over the ice for pink champagne. Note, mix a serve to retain the sparkle and zest. Yeah, I know what you're serving for your next big party. Uh, so not only are Smith's collections a treat to read and imagine serving, but they also supported important community work. In addition to raising funds for service projects like improving standards in local slums, her words, Smith also conducted itinerant teaching training classes, and she established the Commercial Cooking and Baking Department at Prairie View A&M University, a historically black college near Houston, Texas. She really empowered others by using food as a tool of social uplift. 
Another gem in the Texas collection is the Lone Star Cookbook and Meat Special. From the slaughter pen to the dining room table by Artaway Fillmore. Fillmore describes his motive to pass on to housewives, cooks, and those expecting to become cooks the benefit of knowledge acquired by him from study and upward of 30 years experience in the kitchen as cook. Those who prepare the food are in large measure responsible for the health of those who eat it. Therefore, a knowledge as to how to properly prepare food is indispensable to good health. With over 30 years of experience as a chef in some of the largest and leading hotels, cafes, and railroad companies in the Southwest, including the Hilton Hotel in Dallas, Texas, Fillmore's menus are organized by course with suggested prices. 25 cents for sliced cucumbers, $1.50 for plank steak at lunch, or all the way to 180 for Vienna Schnitzel Holstein for dinner. These published volumes expected a larger audience than the family concoctions which first held our attention. Nonetheless, they really reveal a similar care for giving back to their community, and they prioritize teaching healthy food practices for families and neighbors. The PBS series, A Chef's Life, highlights how we can benefit from oral tradition, passed down from generation to generation in the kitchen, because not all recipes are written down. That's true. Many families pass down knowledge through observation and hands-on lessons. Recipes shared through such methods risk not including the details needed to recreate the recipe on your own. A Chef's Life follows Vivian Howard, who grew up in North Carolina tobacco country. After pursuing a career as a professional chef in New York, she returned home to open her own restaurant. Howard describes Southern cooking as a complex cuisine with abundant variation shaped by terrain, climate, and people. Inspired by seasonal and local food, she seeks out traditional methods of preparing traditional Eastern Carolina dishes. In fact, she often ventures into neighbors' kitchens, like I do into your kitchen, <laughs> and she recovers these soon-to-be-lost cooking techniques that use distinctly regional products. She finds out how to take watermelon rinds that you might usually throw away and make pickles, or how to whip up a batch of Apple Jacks. Yum! A frequent guest on this show is Miss Lily Hardy, a septuagenarian Howard refers to as her friend and home cook mentor. In a 2016 interview, Miss Lily explains, As a little girl coming up, I worked in the fields with my daddy and my mama, putting up tobacco and stuff like that. After I got married, I worked at a nursing home for about 30 years, but I worked in the fields all my life. I was about five years old when I started working in tobacco because my mama and my aunt had us out there. Now, Miss Lily keeps on working, but with Warren Brother, one of Howard's produce suppliers, and in her spare time, she shares tidbits about her family's cuisine. Under the watchful eyes of her non-genarian mother, Mary Vaughn, Miss Lily recreates family dishes from sweet potato pie to pineapple and chocolate cake. Interesting combination. And what recipes Miss Lily enacts on screen are deceptively simple, but mastering the final result requires the years of experience that only she possesses. Every time Miss Lily demonstrates a dish, whether it's macaroni and tomatoes or fried cornbread, the ingredient lists and steps are truly bare-bones basic, but the results bring rave reviews. In one of the first episodes of A Chef's Life, Miss Lily teaches Howard how to make biscuits with just whole buttermilk, lard, and self-rising flour, which are all at room temperature. 
Her cooking techniques rely on the five senses, gathering together the dough until it feels right and waiting for the smell of the biscuits baking to know when they're done. Her recipe doesn't specify an oven temperature or cooking time, which is a lot like those early cookbooks we've discussed. In fact, fans of the show will even go and take lessons from Miss Lily and learn how to make her biscuits, but there still is no recipe that they can write down because her recipes are closely guarded and really only end up being documented by other people. Howard's cookbook, Deep Run Roots, features several of these recipes that are based on her lessons with Miss Lily in the kitchen. And it's important to have this documentation profile because some of these recipes will never get out of her. As our show profile explains, her grilled chicken is highly prized, dressed with a closely guarded North Carolina-style barbecue sauce. Warren is a regular fixture at her dinner table and has asked often after the recipe. And even though Warren is her boss, he'll be the first to warn you that Lily told me if she told me the recipe, she'd have to kill me. In the past three episodes, we've considered how food not only sustains and nourishes individuals, but also signifies growth and development of a people and their culture. We've uncovered how, even in the most contentious and polarized of times, like the height of the Cold War or the uncertainty of the Civil War, the necessity of food brings communities together. When we talk about food for thought, we haven't just meant literal food or the thoughts that we might have biting into a rainbow bagel. Rather, we've wanted to consider how food can serve as an analogy for the relationships we create in the kitchen and around the table, and how patterns of those relationships are preserved in food archives. While the future of American cooking remains uncertain, as it always has, we're optimistic that it will taste great. This has been Death and Numbers, a podcast created and produced by the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin and Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. We are Amy Viter and Caroline Barda. Notes for the show, including links and photos, can be found on our website, humanitiesmediaproject.org. Our theme music is Enthusiast by Tours. Thank you for listening.